Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. So I'm really excited for today's conversation with Roz Cohen. So first, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you are now, what you do. I'm Ross Cohen. I was born and raised in Istanbul, and I immigrated to the United States in uh, 1981. So I've been here four decades in the United States, and uh, I grew up listening to Judeo-Spanish at home. Unfortunately, this language now is categorized as an an endangered language and later in my life I felt a little guilty like the rest of us who spoke or heard the language growing up so and I like writing so I decided to start writing my memoirs basically in Judeo-Spanish usually my books are in two languages Judeo-Spanish and and English. And I've been doing that for now for 20 years that I've been writing memoirs. And I have six little books uh, about memoirs, all written in Judeo-Spanish and English. Wow. So I, I heard in your explanation that you were making a distinction between heard and speaking. What, what is that distinction of you heard Judeo-Spanish? Our parents, the ones that spoke Judeo-Spanish solely, were the generation that were born during the Ottoman Empire. Most of those, the, our parents or and grandparents, did not speak Turkish well uh, during the Ottoman period. They, most of them were not educated. They didn't work. They worked with each other, and uh, they worked concentrated in some neighborhoods. So they were dependent on each other. The communities were dependent on each other. So uh, after 1923, when the Republic was established in Turkey, there were new opportunities for our generation. Our parents were ready for that, basically. And uh, I know people sometimes ask me, wasn't this a min- didn't you go to a minority school? I did go to a Jewish school, but uh, the Jewish school, the only Jewish school that, well, that I went to and my did my father went to, was doing uh, chose to do the Turkish program of teaching because unfortunately Judeo Spanish was not a standardized language, so there was really no one to teach it in school and it remained an oral language. The same happened, that's why I said we heard it, because the, the older generation was speaking it. Probably uh, we spoke it when we were little kids, but not once we started going to school, we switched to, to Turkish. 
because we were being educated in Turkish and we were ready to be assimilated to this culture because the rest of, of, of the city was talking Turkish. Therefore, we understood the language very well. But as I said, it, it was never written before in Latin alphabet. It was written in Solitreo and Rashid and just very few people, maybe mostly men, probably mostly men. So there wasn't a literature built. The folklore was just oral, basically. And uh, the truth is also that different neighborhoods spoke it a little differently. Of course, we, we understood each other, but it was the older generation that spoke it really well. So we're going we're gonna to get back to the language and also because you write it with the Latin letters. So I'd like to get back to that later. But in the meantime, you touched upon it a little bit with the schooling. Can you tell us more about growing up in Istanbul during that period, you say, um, post-Ottoman, how, what did that look right. like? I was born in 1949, and I'm writing about 1960s, 60s, maybe till 65 it, it is, was when I was most involved in, in the Jewish life. Because we lived in a neighborhood, it's known as the Galata Tower neighborhood. That's where there's still synagogues in, in that area. By now, it's, of course, gentrified, and uh, Jews do not live in those Jewish, old Jewish neighborhoods. But then the atmosphere was right, because in the neighborhood where I lived, there were many shops that the owners were Jewish. The school was all in walking distance. There were two also elementary schools in walking distance, and everything was in walking distance. <laughs> of course, it's not like today. And uh, I wouldn't say it was a ghetto, you could go live anywhere you want. But uh, of course, people like to live with each other. They're, I mean, our relatives lived in the same neighborhood and everything was in walking distance. We went to school walking. And as I said, we bought the kosher meat from the Jewish butcher in the same neighborhood. And you heard the, the Spanish being spoken if you wandered around that area. And of course, by 1965, I would say majority had either immigrated to Israel, to other countries, or have, they have moved to better neighborhoods because the homes were also designed for small families and with the 1950 requirements of what you needed then. And, and that really, for me, that was the only period that kept this whole language together. After that, a communication style started changing. I think most homes, we didn't even have homes in, in those years. And then that's when all this mod modernization started, that Jews didn't have to live that close with each other. They could talk over the phone. Their children could started going to other schools and, and so on. So that was, a, for me at least, that was a special time uh, when this was alive. And I just want to, because I always have to ask this, about the synagogue. You mentioned that the synagogue was also a meaning place. Did women go to synagogue? Did you participate? Uh, I, I would say I could go if I wanted to, but we didn't. Uh, in general, I would say that the reason for that could also be the general atmosphere in the country. After Ataturk established the, um, the Republic, he emphasized to put religion into a private 
box. Just, uh, you don't have to show off your religious clothes and you don't have, I mean, that's what's true for Muslims as well. He was really trying to separate religion from government. So he said, it's, it's in your conscience. And when you go to the synagogue, you go quietly. You don't have to make a show out of it or to the mosque. This has changed now. That's not true anymore. But in those years, so it was something that you didn't show off with your religion. And the fa my father went every Friday, every morning, every holiday. And my mother, when she got older, she was going more often. They did sit then separately. They, they sat in the Azara, uh, and, you know, with a different entrance. But this also has changed there, you know, now. Now it's a more, more of a community center. But then it wasn't. It was purely religious. We used to go if there was a bar mitzvah of a cousin, we went. If there was a wedding, we went. But um, not on a daily or weekly basis. How do you end up in America? Well, actually, uh, when I was 20, I finished an American school in Istanbul. And that's also part of the part of the change because you're exposed to a different school, to different cultures, to different friends. Going to a, a private school, my friends were mostly Muslim friends. And uh, I think that by then, I mean, I'm talking years 63 to 69. By then, I didn't feel as close. I knew I'm Jewish, but I was also interested in this outside world. It was more interesting, it was more open. Um, my parents were getting old and they still carried a lot of, you know, old beliefs and, and so on. So there was kind of a rebellion there, let's say, but, uh, it, it, but it hasn't made the leap yet. The Jews in Turkey had just beginning. Uh, an example is that my sister now had a Muslim boyfriend that she was going to marry eventually. This was still unusual in the 60s, not anymore. And uh, it, that caused a lot of friction at home because my father was quite you know, conservative about that. You're going to laugh at this, but I felt like, okay, I can't stand being in the house anymore. And Israel suddenly was offering youth from Turkey, why don't you come to Israel and study in Israel? We're going to give you scholarships to study and so on. So that was an opportunity for me. And I left for Israel in 1969, as soon as I finished high school. And I spent six years in Israel. I went to Betzalel there. Um, I lived by myself or with friends. Things that I wouldn't have been then able to do in Istanbul, that has changed too. So we, we were a little bit pioneers in that sense. I met my ex-husband and that's how he needed to study in the United States. And that's how I made it to the United States. When you came to Israel, were you, did you know other um, people from Istanbul who were coming? Or did oh, you yes. Know? Yes, it was a large group of youngsters came then, and some came with families. Immigration of the Jews uh, has been in waves from, from Turkey. It was when Israel was established, there was a big wave of immigrants. 
And you see that in my stories, I write about both family members uh, immigrating and so on. It, this was kind of new where youngsters alone, I mean, along with some went with their families in, in those years and some went alone. The, one, the ones that went with families, I think made it better. It was easier for them. And us, the single ones, we usually we didn't stay. Oh. We eventually, yeah, came back. So I want to understand the, um, when you came to Israel, were you part of the, you said that you kind of were disconnected from your Judaism and then all of a sudden you're thrown into this very Jewish environment and the right. Muslims, I'm assuming, weren't so active at that point in B'Tzalel. No, 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 of course not. And I did feel very alienated. I mean, uh, this was the, I was brought up in the 60s, but Turkish, even schools, I was in a girl's school and uh, we, it was a different culture. I shoot it still different in many ways, but, um, and in Israel, you, you had girls that finished high school and served in the military and they were back. They were quite different in my eyes. For them, maybe I was a little uh, girl that haven't seen life or, or, and then they were so brave. They carried guns around. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't think even I understood it fully. But no, I was very alienated. So I was making friends only with other uh, foreign students could be from even South America and whatever, Europeans, French, Russians, a few, of course, there were Turkish friends also, Turkish, Jewish friends, but not with Israelis. So you weren't speaking Judeo-Spanish at that point? Of course not, no, yeah, of course not. It's interesting because I only found out about Sephardic being Sephardic in Israel, because uh, I, in Turkey, we were just Jewish. Um, Sephardic didn't mean much, but in Israel, reading, I took a class about being Sephardic coming from Spain. I came, I used to come back to Turkey, visit my parents, and I asked my father, my father liked to read, he wasn't a very educated person, but he liked to read and he knew things. So I asked him, I said, why didn't you ever say that we came from Spain. And he looked at me and he said, we didn't. And I was, um, I thought, oh, I guess he doesn't know, know it. But then later I understood that he knew it very well. We are, are we're Romaniot descent. Oh, wow. So can you yes. just tell a little bit about that? Cause I'm not sure right. everybody. I'll tell you uh, that uh, how, first of all, a person told me, suddenly I was interested, what is, this Romaniot, what's the difference? And of course, I started reading the history, how the Spaniards came. A person that I respected a lot, who was very knowledgeable, God Nassi, told me, your grandfather's last name is Romano. Do you know that you guys are Romaniot? And I was like, oh, that's exciting. <laughs> so that was the first thing. Then I connected it with what my father Said. Then I realized that uh, I started recognizing the Sephardim in the city. They were more educated, first of all. They were the lawyers and the doctors and so on. And the, 
Then I read a couple books. There are many books on Romanian and talked about with the coming of the Sephardim to Istanbul, just as, as the city was conquered by the Ottomans. When the Sephardim were invited, the Sephardim were invited because they were educated, because they had professions, because they knew languages. And they were the guests of the Ottomans. They, some of them started working as doctors in the, the Ottoman palaces. The Romaniot were the remnants of the Byzantine Empire. They were poorer, they were less educated, and the two groups did not mix for three centuries. They only mixed in the, in the 17th century. They started mixing. But in my opinion, the remnant of that remained. To not, not anymore, but in the 60s, if you look back, you see, I started noticing that my parents' friends had Greek last names. They didn't have friends. The last name was Toledo and... Uh, uh, and whatever, but it, they were it would they were Givre and uh, Antikudi and so on. So it all made sense that uh, there was a disconnect. There were still the remnants of a disconnect. But the funniest thing that I'd love to say is I heard an expression at home that I never heard it in an, any other Jewish home. They used to scare me. They used to say, if you don't eat your food or whatever, if you don't go to sleep, some Pavlo is going to come and get you. Years later, I thought, what is this some Pavlo? It is the, the her, well, the heretic in Tarsus who uh, scared the, the local Jews. I think when did, did he leave? The, the, one of the early Christians that uh, used to, I guess, force Jews maybe to to Christianize, because I'd never heard it among the Sephardim. It was something at home. They said, San Pablo is coming, and I didn't know what it meant, but it scared me. So that's how I discovered that, that we were a little different. But then, of course, you know, everyone spoke to their Spanish eventually. Right. Yeah. It all started to come together. But I think one of the themes that you, um, that you raised is when you leave your home community, that's when you understand more your identity. And that, right. that you're finding that a lot. Um, yes, yes. And of course I left home again. So <laughs> that's the reason maybe I'm writing because I'm still trying to understand. So when you went to America, were you in a Sephardi community or in a Judeo-Spanish community or a Jewish community? Yeah. Not at all. The only Jewish community I was in was Rachel Bortnik's virtual community. But uh, no, because I also, because of the, my ex-husband's uh, goals in life, we, we switched four states. Wow. In the, yeah. First, we lived in New Mexico, then in, in Nashville, Tennessee, Ohio, and St. Louis. So I, I, I usually I did try to find about the Jewish communities, but I didn't connect deeply. I mean, it was a, uh, it, it, the thing interesting is while in Turkey, the Jewish community was changing and, and 
adapting to new ideas and so on. I wasn't because I was left with what I came with. Uh, for example, they, if they started uh, becoming more communal, for me, it wasn't so because for me, it was the remained uh, foreign to me. So here the, the Jewish communities were already there, you know, it was a communal thing. They had parties, they had picnics, whatever. And for, no. I just remained behind in that sense. I never caught up with it. So now what made you, let's get into what made you come back. And now you're very much immersed in the whole Judeo-Spanish community and um, writing numerous books. And Physically speaking, what happened is in one of my visits to Turkey in 1992, suddenly, um, there was celebrations about the quincentennial arrival of the Sephardim. And uh, there were plays and music and all this, and uh, all the Istanbul population, not just the Jews who were very interested in the topic. Probably the Turkish government also felt like, okay, we will take advantage of that and we'll talk how tolerant we are and all this. And in a way, it's true. That's what I think. So there were all those things and everyone is celebrating and suddenly uh, we have new singers come along. They're singing Sephardic song songs and uh, they're talking about the language being endangered. This was something that I was raising kids, moving from state to state. I wasn't interested in it. I never even didn't cross my mind. And after 1992, there was an awakening in, in, in Istanbul that it's our generation. We stopped talking. We didn't teach our children. In the United States, of course, no, I was never. I mean, there are a few large Sephardic communities, I think, in Los Angeles and Seattle, New York, probably. I've, I've never been to any of those. And so Rachel Bortnik started this virtual com comunita. It was also a personally difficult period for me. And I was looking for someone. It's like I was looking for maybe mother to come and <laughs> save me. <laughs> so mother wasn't there anymore, but the language was. And that's so another really, kind of home. I mean, that's... Yes, yes. and that's where I found comfort in writing the, the memoirs. The, and then that's how it started. I started with short memoirs, putting them in Ladino Comunita. Uh, then uh, God Nasi said, let me, uh, let me, you know, help you with this. Uh, re, you know, like he it edited some of it and I started remembering things. After I wrote about 40 short, it was over 10 years. I, I wrote about 40 little stories that they're all in the first book. Uh, a Turkish Jewish uh, publisher, Rufat Bali, said, why don't we put this into a book? Of course, who would say no? Right. And that's how it all started, yeah. Wow, So, but when you originally wrote them, did you write them only in Judeo-Spanish? Because I see that- Right, I was writing in Judeo-Spanish. Where again, as I said, because all this movement has started in right after 1992, they also started Amanecer. It was a little Jewish newspaper. There was already a Shalom a Jewish newspaper, but it was in Turkish. So they started, the, I think it was 99 uh, or, or 2000, they started the Jewish uh, edition to the paper. 
So I was sending it to that, to that and they were publishing them. So yeah, it was only in Judeo Spanish. But when we decided to publish it into a book, I was interested that it was also in English for those who don't remember the language or don't even care maybe, because I was writing about the Jewish life in the 1950s, so. Yeah, which is incredible because that means that people like us can have access to these stories. You can choose to answer or not to answer, but what was your children's reaction to this? Did um, I don't know also if you like, you said you didn't speak it, but maybe did you throw in things like San Pablo is going to come get you or something like that when they were growing up? You know what? Not the scary part, but the humor. <laughs> Obviously, the humor, um, you know, they all knew about the Jewish life. I took them. They saw grand. They did have a, the opportunities to see grandparents and aunts when they were little, when people were still alive. So they were very aware of the of our Jewish background, and yes, I did throw in Kalamazucho words, and and uh, I used it just to tease them sometimes because that's what who I am, you know. Just uh, and uh, I took them many times back to Turkey, showed them around, and they were really happy to see me write. They love it. Mm-hmm. My one of my daughters also helps me with editing the English. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're involved. And they're very enthusiastic about me doing that. And now the grandchildren, uh, I'll tell you something funny. I told my older grandson, who's eight, Elijah, I told him, you know what? I've only been writing since, you know, last year. I didn't write when I was young. And he goes, grandma, I've been writing since I was three years old. <laughs> So the the writing has become very important in our daily life. (laughs) No, that's incredible. So I want to focus a little bit on some examples from the book. So you mentioned the first book that you wrote. Just let everybody know the name of it, please. (laughs) It's Istanbul Judior, Jewish Istanbul, the first one. These were memoirs of people you knew or... It's all people I knew, the, the um, aunt, I write about Tansarina, I write about the doctor that came to do home visits, the, the shoe, shoemaker, uh, who else do I write about? Uh, the, the visits to, to the synagogue, and the beggars in the synagogue, uh, just about anybody important or not important. I felt they were very important. Of course, the French teacher who was our neighbor, I wrote all about them. Yes. It's all real people. So that kickstarted you into this whole genre that you just continued. So if you had to focus, let's say, what, what book do you want to make, do you think is important for everybody to know that shows really this is the identity? Well, this one shows a lot because each story has, has a theme, like a when I'm talking about uh, the doctor, I'm talking about how he was like a part of the family, uh, how he, when he came, he worried about us, he does not see how different it was in that sense. And how the old aunt immigrated, he, she's a part of the immigration to Israel. How she looked at, at Israel with great admiration and hopes. So in every little story, there is a theme about the Jewish life of those years. 
what other books do you think are important that and why? Now, the second book I, I wrote is a prequel to the first one. I called it Constantinople Judeo, and I based it on family stories, people usually that I did not know. But the other thing I did, because I also always want to capture the life in the language, Judeo-Spanish, I think when, when you have communities of that sort, uh, the language is full of cliché and proverbs, and we lived by those clichés <laughs> and, and proverbs. So what I did is, as I was telling about each relative or whoever, even I wrote about my parents and uh, father and mother separately, uh, I was taking one proverb or one saying and I was applying it to their lives. So, for example, because of that, I mean, someone who doesn't know Judeo-Spanish or, I mean, I tried to explain that. Uh, they may not find it interesting, but someone who knows the language or is learning the language will find this one very interesting, I think. Rachel Bortnik loves the second book that, mm -hmm. because I used old photographs and old cliches and put it together. Yeah. Right, I mean, and I love that the photographs kind of make it come to life like Dalia was saying it it brings so that we understand what it was like at that point and it can right. you know, it really helps to understand the greater Jewish world which is what we talk about all the time right. the other thing I did was I also I inter I just intersected the photographs I was just nitpicking the photographs I would point out how women wore tiny shoes because they had to look with the tiny shoes. So I was putting all those things the way life was then, just to emphasize that. Yeah, and that's what makes it real. And that's what makes it understand that we're, it's just a different part of the Jewish world, but it was definitely right. a part of our world. And so you were encouraged to put it down in writing and you said it became a big part of your life now. Is there um, a particular message that you think is important? Because you're, it's not only to preserve the language. You said uh, Rachel Bortnik, and she really wants to preserve the language. This isn't, though, because you have it translated into English as well. So Yes, I have it translated because I, I, living in the United States, you come across questions that you're surprised. You know, people say, are you really Jewish? You don't speak Yiddish, you know. So it's also an answer and to let other nations or people ask me, do you eat... Um, what was it? Gefilte fish. No, we don't eat gefilte fish. So I talk about that. We that's who we were. We didn't eat gefilte fish, but we are Jewish. We're very, very much so. So it, it's also to preserve those years because it's all you know. Nowadays we eat sushi. We you know we eat anything from all over the world. That's not how it was. It's such a different world today. So I feel like. You, we need to talk about those years. And that's why the language survived then and not now. Because how am I going to say sushi in Judeo-Spanish? You know? <laughs> the continuation of the online uh, community. Are you still involved in that? Not as much, but I always keep an eye on it. And uh, there's been so many other people that are doing so many interesting things. Uh, there is a young fellow, he is a, teaching Judeo-Spanish now in Oxford, 
Carlos Yebra Lopez is one of them. So he, he put me, you know, I, I told him verbally, I explained the books and, and he's collecting also speakers of Judeo-Spanish and recording it. And he's planning to, no, he's already teaching a class. And he's not the only one in Seattle. Of course, there is a whole uh, department with Devin Nahr. I mean, a lot of younger folks have, uh, and this helps them. Uh, well, they have a camp there as well in Seattle. <laughs> right. The, then uh, Rafat Bali is, uh, well, there is also Gazlam. Not many people are interested in publishing because the sale is not big, <laughs> you know, just uh, a few interested people. But academic libraries are very interested. So they do buy the books and it helps them. So that gives me also a good goal that, you know, it is it is needed someplace, not in many places, but it, it could. Uh, I think it also has some a of the, I don't, I don't want to say naivete, but some of the phrases mm -hmm. that you were saying, the idioms that would come out, I think really helped establish the community. You're saying it's the language, but I think those are actually the things that really kept it together. Can you share with us one or two of those idioms or phrases that you were saying you used in the book, but something that really says, this is who we were. This is who we were. Uh, well, a good one is mascar fierro. You know, uh, it means chewing iron, you know, the metal iron. But that was also the approach, how we, we were pessimistic. Everything was very difficult and uh, people worried about things that we don't worry anymore. For example, getting married was so important. You had to go yes. to fortune tellers to, to solve your issues. So yeah, those are the types of things that made up each and every one of them. Yeah, the, the sadness is, some of it is really sad. And- uh, So chewing, and that, chewing iron really has to do with the hardship and- Hardship, it's only, but you know, that's why I always, people ask me, did you translate it? No, it, it's, it's a loose translation. I didn't translate it as chewing iron. I translated it. Uh, also about clothing, apanios uh, dan honor, that if you want to be a valuable person, you have to dress well. That was another. And some of these uh, uh, proverbs probably are from Spanish originally, or it could be from Turkish also that were translated. Yeah. And some from Hebrew. Because right, I'm sure we've found across the board that a lot of these proverbs or idioms come from uh, biblical sources or Mishnah sources. Right. So it's always interesting right. to see the parallels there. And that's why it, it's interesting to hear. I wonder if anybody here listening knows a parallel to the chewing iron, please send us a, a message and we, we're interested in hearing it because <laughs> we right. love yeah. the parallels and brings us together as a Jewish community. Yes, um, it, it was, uh, especially the, the prequel, it, it was it was a very difficult period for the Jews between the two wars, let's say. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't see the, the Shoah, but uh, times were difficult in the Ottoman Empire for everyone. Right. And, oh. yeah. and it was the end of it, so. <laughs> right, yeah. I just want to wrap up with one question. So you sort of had this journey of 
uh, you were in the heart of your community. When you left it, you kind of became interested in it. And there are other people who live outside, uh, let's say their parents' community and don't even know where to look, but mm -hmm. are searching uh, for some of their history. Um, you can choose either one, but do you have um, guidance for somebody who wants to learn more about where they came from, um, whether they're in the thick of it or they're disconnected? It's interesting because one of my books is just kind of maybe can can show the light to some people. First of all, I would say keep your photographs, your old photographs. I know people sometimes just dump them. They think, what are they good for? I mean, I don't know who these people are, but they carry a lot of information. The, the book, Letra a mi padre sobre los primos cubanos, letter to my father about our Cuban cousins. It is about great uncle that went to Cuba and, uh, in 1924, and there's a big group of, of Jews that left for Cuba in 1924. And uh, that community dispersed with after Castro. They didn't adjust to the new system there. I had photographs they had sent to my grandparents. They were describing life in Cuba, photographs, their weddings, the community, and so on. So I knew that who they were. I mean, even though I was born 20 years later, I knew who they were. And my daughter gifted me a DNA test. Guess what? I found, they found me because they had taken the same DNA test. So uh, I met them, I went and met them and I wrote this book about them, about our meeting, about their background, where the grand, they didn't, they knew nothing about it. They knew very little about it. Of course, because I grew up in Turkey, I could relate to many of the things, but they were so happy to, to know that I knew where the grandparent lived, what he did, I had photographs. They knew their background, but they didn't know the details. They were really happy, especially the older cousin was just delighted to, to find out about those things. And he also helped me writing the book. So DNA tests, I guess. <laughs> you find your tree. We have that too. Yeah. Right. It's but it's good to keep photographs and know who they were, and so that helps too. So. <laughs> no, and hopefully people be inspired by your book on your Cuban cousins. I mean, that's an important part. It's also reading about other people finding their. Right. Uh, it's very interesting because the older cousin, close to my age. He remembers uh, the language the great parents spoke. And he said, it seems like they were speaking a bad Spanish. <laughs> and, uh, but then I, when I think he lived sometime in, in Miami, he was hearing the same bad Spanish. And uh, eventually he understood, but he also felt bad when it disappeared. So mm -hmm. it, it disappeared. disappeared but <laughs> not yet yes but it, the voices hearing the voices wherever yeah. you went that is not there it's interesting that it happened the same time i mean it's happened in the 60s or 50s 60s where the last we we heard it in the streets yeah. in cuba in miami and in istanbul yeah well that's why i think it's really important the work that you're doing 
And I want to thank you first for these books, because um, I mean, I'm in university now, so I do have access to them and I encourage others to to go find them as well. And thank you for sharing your story with us here. Uh, we really appreciate it. And it's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Rora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.